Welcome to The Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. Although several big states held their primaries this week, the presidential campaign, like the rest of the country, is racing against a public health crisis that's keeping most Americans indoors. On Politics of Truth, we'll continue to cover the presidential election, however it proceeds from here. But as the coronavirus unfolds, we'll look at how its impact, from economic slowdown to social distancing, may affect not just the 2020 election, but the future of American political life. This week, I spoke with my friend Mark McKinnon, a decorated political advisor and co-host of Showtime's The Circus, who has one of the most unique bios, not just in politics, but of anyone I know. We discuss Mark's experience in the Bush administration during 9-11 and some of the parallels with today's fear and uncertainty, plus stories of the colorful characters Mark grew up working with in Texas politics and elsewhere. We also consider whether Bernie Sanders' campaign has a path forward and how Joe Biden, if he secures the nomination, might adapt his message as voters' needs evolve throughout this crisis. Finally, we get to music where Mark opens up about high school days as a songwriter and his aspirations as a professional musician, including a must-hear story about meeting Chris Christopherson when Mark was just a teenager and moving to Nashville to work with him. See what I mean about his bio? There's a whole lot more, too. So let's get started. Mark McKinnon, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Hey, man. It's a good time for truth, my friend. We need we need a whole lot it of is it. A good time. I I wish we had it two months ago. Yeah, isn't that the truth, boy? Think about the history of this when this all uh, gets rewound. I mean, seriously, you know, I, I guess we're all we're all thinking back to nine eleven right now, or we kind of want to, because that was a moment of deep uncertainty and uh, uh, fear and anxiety. But we saw a path ahead. You worked in the Bush administration. Talk about what that was like, that moment of crisis in the executive office and and how it was handled then and and what we can take from that moment to apply to this moment, if anything. Well, there there are some parallels for sure. I mean, the the most striking is just that feeling that you're, you're entering a reality that we've never seen before. And that's really unsettling for people. I mean, you just suddenly feel like your world has changed overnight and you're living in something that's completely unfamiliar. And that's incredibly destabilizing for the entire country because we just, we don't know. We're, you know, we kind of live our lives because we're familiar with our routines and we know what's going to happen. And suddenly you strike that all away and you feel like you're kind of out of an airplane without a parachute. And the other thing that's the same, I'd say, Bob, is that... uh, you know, we immediately had a sense, we all did, I'm sure you remember this, that we were just living in a different world. Like our, you know, it had changed dramatically. And maybe, I think a lot of us felt at that time that we're going to be living in kind of a domestic terrorist environment for a long, long time. And in fact, you know, things didn't get as bad as we thought they were going to get, Right. I mean, I think we all thought that the, the, those attacks were maybe the first of a lot more to come domestically. And that didn't happen, thank God. Uh, so 
The differences are that, and, 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 I, and again, I think one, maybe one more thing to, to note is just that it's generally as a country, we kind of rose up and unified and uh, we had some strong leadership at the top, uh, I would say, trying to be objective as I can about rallying the people. The difference is that here, there's, there's also the unknown, which is the same, but it, it seems like it's a much broader, you know, this is just not New York. It's the whole country. It's affecting every system that we've got, including, you know, your schools and my schools and my grandkids, your kids, uh, everybody. I mean, basically the, the, the whole country has shut down completely. That didn't happen in 9-11. I mean, people still had their jobs. They still, schools stayed open. So that's different. And then the leadership question is another one. I mean, it's, it's, you know, no matter what you say about Donald Trump, it's part of what, what I've always worried about is that there would be a crisis. I thought that he'd been lucky that he hadn't faced one. And part of his whole MO is to, is to govern chaotically. And that's fine at a time when kind of you're in a relative peace and prosperity. Uh, and it's, it's, it's fine to go, you know, you know, either fire half the government or not rehire a third of the government and have all these, you know, different agencies lacking either personnel at all or personnel that's experienced. And, and now we suddenly have a, a time in which this is when you need presidential leadership. This is when you need calm and you need experience and you need, you need people at the helm in these agencies who know what they're doing. And, and at least initially, we're seeing some real potential problems, I think, with, uh, you know, the, with the way things have been either run or staffed. And we're, we're seeing some immediate consequences. And hopefully we'll right that ship. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm 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 rallying all that I can in my bipartisan spirit to rooting for the president and, and the administration to pull this together and, and and I was I was encouraged by some of the stuff last week by the private sector pulling together and private sector is you know always uh, a, a, a kind of a life buoy for us in America because they're just they're smart and fast and and moving ways the government can't but but the the other thing about the leadership question is that George Bush never thought it was about him. You know, he never looked at the polls post 9-11. I mean, he didn't much before then, but it was never a referendum on him. He never thought about it in those terms. And clearly Trump does. I mean, he, he looks at almost everything that happens as a, as a referendum on him. And this is a time when we just need it to be about the country and moving forward. Yeah, you know, la- last night we had um, the third Super Tuesday, if you will, or mini Super Tuesday that was even smaller than it should have been uh, with Ohio not proceeding uh, with their Democratic primary vote. But, you know, it's almost an afterthought, right? At this moment, it's like Joe Biden, he locked it up for all intents and purposes. And so uh, that just doesn't feel so relevant at this moment. Talk about this happening in an election year when leadership at the top it has been so questioned and so contentious. How do we continue on with this primary season and election in this environment? Yeah, it's turned everything on its head, including the elections. And as you noted, uh, you know, one of the four big states from yesterday didn't even uh, participate, Ohio, which is a very important state. Th- that's the bad news, Bob. I think the good news is that for all practical purposes, we were kind of at a point of resolution in the Democratic primary anyway. I mean, Joe Biden had miraculously, you know, in a 72-hour period a couple of weeks ago, just turned this thing around in a way that nobody anticipated uh, and, and really, and we kind of knew this thing was over a week ago, 
and that the rest of this stuff was going to be pro forma. But now it's going to be pro forma, maybe in a way that it was in 2016, meaning we kind of knew the outcome, but it may march ahead for several months just because Bernie's Bernie and he's going to want to kind of keep planting his flag and and keep bending the ideas to his uh, in his direction. But I but think in this now, case, I mean, wasn't Bernie's strength, his rallies and yeah, be, his yeah. dynamic uh, spirit and and his his cadence of speaking works so well in front of 20,000 people. But but now he's down 300 delegates, uh, at least. And he doesn't have the option of going out and literally drawing a crowd of young people um, to to perform in front of. So how does he, in good conscience at this moment, continue on that much longer? Well, I think that's the key phrase, good conscience, in, in three aspects. One is sitting about conscience, but one is just that there really is no path anymore. I mean, the, the delegate math is almost impossible. And then take away the rallies, which you noticed, you know, his the basic way that he gets out his message uh, you know, he was counting on the debate to move things in a big way, and it really didn't. So there's there's nothing on paper that, you you know, you can sit around the table with him as a strategist and say, well, Bernie, here's how we're going to do it. I don't see, as a former strategist, how you make a compelling or honest case to him unless you just want to go up and spend money uh, and spend down the bank. But uh, that's not good conscience. Good conscience would be to say, listen, there's no pathway forward if Bernie is true to what he said, which is the most important thing is beating Donald Trump, the best thing to do would be to, to pull it down and say, in, in the best interest of the Democratic Party and our democracy, uh, I'm pulling it down and, and, and marching our, and calling the troops to march behind Joe Biden. Um, and then finally, I'd say, in, in terms of, the, of, of good conscience, I think he has to look at this too and just look what's happening to the country and the world and just say, what's the best thing for the country? Not even politically, uh, you know, just it's probably a good idea for me to just get off the stage so that so that it's not a distraction. So we can focus our full efforts on, you know, getting Joe to be the nominee and also to just kind of to rally, you know, get our shoulders behind the, the real pro, the real crisis that we're facing. Donald Trump will attack any uh, political rival, any citizen of the country on his Twitter feed or in a speech, uh, in a ceremony at will. It doesn't matter if there's the coronavirus going on or or if, if, if it's a normal day or if, or if there was a shooting somewhere. He doesn't care. But how does Joe Biden, as he consolidates, as the race consolidates and as he we move through the next couple of months, how does he um attack Trump or push his platform uh, while respecting this moment of crisis where we need unification. You, you know, you just said it. Hey, I'm pulling for Trump. Hey, I'm pulling for Trump because if Trump succeeds in this moment, we survive. Uh, so how does Biden uh, campaign in, in this in this really uncertain time? Well, I think it's tailor made for him, really, uh, because the, the, the switch that has been flipped that that really helps Biden. I, you know, he he in many ways is a subpar candidate. You know, just for all the obvious reasons, I don't have to go into. But but you know, has a lot of affection for him and a lot of experience. Presidential races, like most contests, kind of revolve around the axis of change versus more of the same or status quo. And generally, in an election, when you're the incumbent, you're the status quo. Well, the remarkable thing about Donald Trump is he ran as the change candidate. For uh, to be president, and now running for re-election, he's still the change candidate. That's a remarkable thing to be able to do, and it testifies to his strength, which is you know he is the chaos president, the disruptor. He did keep his word about all of that. What's changed is the world around him. So now, in the current environment, 
What's flipped is that where where his sort of change argument versus Joe Biden, which is kind of, you know, the old, more of the same, what you know, safe bet, was appealing a month ago. That's kind of turned the tables on him now because at a time when you have crisis and you, and you want sort of reassurance and safe and common experience and what we've known before that worked, Joe Biden's the answer. So now we're we're in an environment where we kind of want status quo. We want to know, we want a guy in there who's done this before, who knows the levers of government. So that whole equation has changed. And I don't think that Biden, I think if, if I were coaching Biden, you know, I'd say, listen, Mr. Vice President, you don't have to go out there and be very political anymore. I know that, you know, you know a month ago, we wanted to go kind of, you know, sling arrows and, you know, and trade jabs with, uh, with the president. And the president can't help himself. He's going to keep doing that. Let him do that. You be the guy who's been there before. Remain calm. Don't swing at every jab. Just, you know, just kind of stay in the corner and just be presidential. And I think kind of, you know, make it clear to voters that you've got to sort of campaign in some capacity, but you can't, you're not doing rallies anyway. I'd be very policy focused. Make it clear that you're doing what you can to mobilize and help in the effort and even helping Trump, you know, just say, listen, we've got resources, we've got people, we want to help. And I think if he can send that message that he's trying to help rather than just make this all political, I think that'll help Biden. You talk about uh, advising uh, Biden. Uh, you've advised a lot of candidates and a lot of politicians over the decades. And you have uh, really a fascinating biography. And I'd like to get into it a little bit with you if you feel comfortable doing so sure, today. Course, okay. Sure. So ta- let's talk about the beginning for you. We'll talk about music in a little bit. But I want to start with your beginnings in Texas politics, because you've worked with some of the most dynamic politicians uh, that, that that state and our country's ever seen. Charlie Wilson, to begin with. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your time with him and what was he really like? Well, first of all, I'd say what Lyndon Johnson said, which is you're pissing on my leg, but it's warm and it feels good, Bob. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you're, you're such a good student of, uh, of politics and history that you nailed it. You know, most people would read my bio and they'd say something about, you know, Bush or McCain or Bono or something. You nailed it. The most interesting, exciting, absolutely exhilarating character I ever met in my life was Charlie Wilson. And, and why don't we just say for our listeners that don't know about Charlie Wilson, Tom Hanks, Played him in a movie, Charlie Wilson's War. Check it out. It's a lot of fun. Really fascinating movie. Anyway, go ahead, Mark. Well, Charlie was, uh, you know, one of the great characters of American politics. He was from East Texas, about 6'6", super skinny and lanky and a big booming voice. And he was... um, he was a he was a bad boy. He was a he was a he you know he drank. He did drugs. He he you know he went out with Playboy bunnies and just was. I mean, he was in the news all the time for his bad behavior. In every single election, he was number one on the hit list. You know, was, that was everybody he the Rolling Stones of politics? Yes, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, and he he loved you know he he just was a rascal, and he he was just a rascal in the best sense of the word. But he was also uh, you know, he's also really effective and he got shit done. And, uh, and, and the whole Charlie Wilson's war is this unbelievable story about how basically he and one other guy ran the war <laughs> in Afghanistan, uh, and a great book and a, and a terrific movie. And if you'd pitched it as fiction, they would have thrown you out because it's just the craziest wildest story that only Charlie Wilson could do. But he was so much fun to work with just because he loved media and he loved, you know, kind of teasing people and, and just, you know, it was just a Wild West show. And as an example, 
I remember the last campaign, we'd always go out to East Texas to Lufkin and there was some barbecue joint and we'd kind of have our first meeting and talk about the campaign and what we were gonna do. And so we all showed up and he showed up with this woman who was about, you know, she, she looked 16 or 17 and, and he's, he's like, boys, you know, welcome. Good to see you all. It's going to be a great campaign. It's going to be a tough one again, I know. But I just want to assure you that uh, I'm, I'm settling down. This here's Miss Marie. And, uh, you know, she's a, she's, a, she's a good Baptist girl. She sings in the choir. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, she's really had a good effect on me. And it's going to make this campaign a lot easier. And I'm, I'm seriously thinking about settling down and getting married just as soon as she graduates from high school. <laughs> we go, here we go again. Well, that was Charlie Wilson. Yeah. So, so Ann Richards. Ann Richards was, uh, uh, you know, again, another great character and, and so memorable. And, you know, talk about she just shattered glass ceilings left and right for women. Not the first governor of Texas, but the first elected female governor of Texas, uh, you know, with uh, sweeping white hair and just a great kind of Texas character. She, she, she was launched at the stage of the uh, Democratic Convention in 1988 when she, when she attacked George Bush for being born with I'll a silver spoon in his mouth. I'll never forget that. Yes, I'll never forget right? that speech. Oh. Yeah. Well, nobody did either, and it was it was such a great speech, and she she was such a great performer. I mean, she's just one of those people. I mean, I you know I got the as you said the opportunity to work with her, and she's just one of those candidates who was you just wound her up and let her go because she was she could have been you know, an A-list talent in Hollywood. She was that good. And she just, she knew the script. She, she was a great, great performer. And so that speech, as you said, was, was memorable. And, then, and five minutes afterwards, people started talking about her running for governor. And uh, so it was, a, it was a great, great honor to work for her and have her win that race against very long odds. And, uh, and we all really miss her. So then, you know, you worked for a lot of Texas Democrats, but then you crossed over. You crossed over and you worked for George W. Bush. What was it about him when you met him that that drew you guys together? Well, there's a, there's a few things. <clears throat> One is that prior to the 90s in Texas, there was no Republican Party to speak of. There was, but you were either a conservative Democrat or, or a progressive Democrat. That's kind of two parties. So when George Bush came to town uh, and talked about this compassionate conservative message, you know, saying you can be both conservative and compassionate, and he, he embraced things like immigration and education in ways that Republicans nationally uh, had never done. And, you know, that was just music to my ears. It's like I heard that. I was like, that's what I am. I love that. And, uh, and I, you know, I just, I'd had my sort of issues with sort of traditional democratic orthodoxy and trade and other issues. And so I, I just found that very appealing. And then I also had been through enough campaigns at that time that I'd sort of signed up with people that checked off everything on my issue list and they turned out to be horrible human beings. And that at the end of the day, that's really important, just kind of what sort of, you know, life experience these candidates have and what sort of values do they live not just talk about. And I immediately, we became friends before I really worked for him. I, I got to know him because I was working on some education-related issues that I'd long been working on in Texas. And so I was talking to him about charter schools. And then we just, he had daughters um, about the same age as mine, and we had a lot in common. We started running together. And, um, and then uh, this weird thing happened where the guy who had done his media before got in some legal trouble. 
And some forces kind of behind the scenes who knew both of us uh, colluded to sort of bring us together and say, hey, why, why don't you have McKinnon do this? So he asked me to do it. And, it. and at first it was, you know, it was a little bit of a, you know, boy, this is this is a little going to be a little awkward. And should I really do this? And But, you know, it, it didn't take long for me to think that it, it was the right thing to do and the right guy to work for. I knew it would be a little bit throw some sparks my way, which it did, but not much, you know, it, uh, you know, there were a few shots from the Parsons, uh, but at the end of the day, I felt really good about it. And, you know, now looking back, of course, it was one of the great honors of my life to work for this guy and I love him forever. And, and, and I've had so many great chapters with him. And, and I think, you know, uh, you know, obviously a rough time with, uh, the war in Iraq and some other things, but, but a genuine, a genuinely, uh, good human being. And, uh, and and also had you know a basic set of sort of values uh, that that I think are really important. And then I think that we, we see now that he that he's out of us. He, he may not be one of the great presidents, but he'll be one of the great ex presidents. So uh, while you worked with uh, with George Bush, uh, Bono had a few uh, issues that were very dear to his heart. And um, I guess was it AIDS in Africa? Yeah, yeah, it was AIDS in Africa initially. Charlie Wilson may have been the most interesting. Bono was the most inspirational person that I've ever met. I mean, this guy's like a prophet and he's just a remarkable human being. And, you know, he's a guy that kind of could have taken his money and, you know, gone to the chalet somewhere and, and kind of checked out. But he, he has devoted so much of his life to big, big, big worldwide problems. Uh, and really, you know, not and put his money where his mouth is, but his brain where his mouth is too. Uh, and really committed to these issues and has worked and you know, work the American Congress more brilliantly than anybody I've ever seen. Both sides of the aisle, he's he's managed to get Republicans signed up on issues that they never would have before, including George W. Bush. So he started early on on Bush, you know, with his his uh, his seduction, which he does so artfully. So, so talk about that a little bit. What was it like for? I mean, because you think, uh, you know, George W. Bush, Republican, conservative. You think Bono? Now I know Bono. Is a uh, is very serious about his faith. Um, yeah, but, well, but he's also a liberal of, musician. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's unconventional, but you know he is a he has deep faith, and he and he knew how to pull those strings for George W. Bush because those are important for him. Um, and he's he's uh, you know he's just uh, uh, he's. Um, when he puts a spell on you, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to turn away. At least uh, you, you want to give him an initial audience. So when Bono comes calling, even George Bush was like, "Well, you know, okay, I'll meet the guy," and then once you meet him, uh, it's done. I mean, because he's he's in your head, and he will. I, I'm, he, here's the kind of phone calls I used to get from him. He'd call, and I'd answer the phone and say, "Hello," and he'd answer, "Mark." This is your conscience calling, you know. <laughs> and I said, "All right, what what do you need for me to do today?" And uh, so he just—I mean, he was, he was always about a higher calling, you know. What can we do? And this was—you know—he appealed to George Bush's faith and his humanity and saving lives. And the reason that I really got to know him is that, in, again, in part because of Bono's good work, the United States government rewired the whole way that we give foreign aid to countries. And, and including and especially Africa. And so George Bush saw that he wanted to help. He wanted to help with the AIDS crisis and, his, and ended up saving millions of lives in Africa. So it's, it's, it's one great uh, un, unimpeachable legacy of George W. Bush that he committed to, uh, you know, a lot of money to Africa and, 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 uh, and saved millions and millions of lives there. 
part of that whole equation was redoing the way we do aid, which means that if we're going to give you money, you have to do certain things. You know, they have to do with making your your you know press freedoms and your your government more de- democratic and transparencies and just a lot of good government stuff that before we just kind of thrown aid away and it's like you guys go do whatever you want. And so they changed the equation. And so as part of that, there was an excursion uh, to Africa, like a 10 country tour to kind of investigate all this and do some research and figure out what countries were doing what. And George W. Bush wisely enlisted Bono and sent him and the then secretary, uh, treasury secretary to Africa on this trip. And I got a call like three days before the trip was to go from somebody at the White House. And they were saying, McKinnon, uh, hey, we're sending the treasury secretary and um, Bono and a plane load of press to Africa. And nobody really thought about this very much. And would you, would you come kind of help wrangle this thing and also help be kind of a, you know, a translator between Bono and the treasury secretary? Um and of course, I, I said, hell, hell yes, just uh, tell me where to be. And so I, I hopped aboard and we went on this amazing tour of Africa. And it, several things were, I mean, incredible in a hundred different ways. But what was particularly striking was, A, just how much work Bono did. First of all, he, he couldn't have been uh, less of a diva. I mean, he, you know, he insisted on carrying his own stuff. He did not want to be the rock star at all. He, in fact, he kind of, he insisted on being, you know, you know, not sort of playing the rock star card. This was all business. And then we go into these meetings with presidents of countries and Bono would know more about these issues in, uh, in their own countries than the presidents of their countries did. That's how, that's how much research and homework he did. And then he'd walk out and he'd do a, you know, he'd do a, a press conference and he would riff and never with a single note. And it was like some of the most, uh, you know, inspirational praise and some of the best speeches I've ever seen in my life. And he he didn't think, you know, he, there wasn't a rehearsed bit to it. You know, he, I saw him do 20 or 30 of these and there wasn't like a single line that was the same ever. It was just always from the heart. And so... So there was all of that. And then there was the impish part of him where we get stuck on a runway and have to spend the night by the plane on the tarmac. And he'd send somebody out for beer and he'd grab a cigarette and say, you know, don't tell my wife I'm smoking. And, you know, just, just, the, and funny, funny as hell. I mean, just a, you know, kind of a towel snapping, the kind of guy you, you just love to be around, you know, just one of the guys. And so, uh, so I had some great chapters with him. And, and again, it just, he's, he's prophetic and in in just in the sense that he's as committed as life to, you know, uh, to making life better for others. So uh, we worked with the late, great Senator John McCain. Yeah, boy, talk about another one. I, I've been really lucky to know some great characters and McCain's right there at the top of the list. Um, uh, I'll tell you a quick story if we if you have time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I always liked McCain, even during the tough Bush years in 2000, which got pretty rough, as you know, because you're a good student of history. That was a yes. very tough campaign. South Carolina in particular. He's got, got pretty ugly in South Carolina. and uh, But I maintained a kind of a back channel because I knew some people that worked for McCain and we had a long history. And so I kind of kept the doors open and, then of course, as things went along, they kind of healed up and haired over, as they say in Texas, and uh, uh, and became became friends really. And uh, uh, so McCain was very helpful in the reelect in two thousand four, 
So there were three debates in the fall for the general election with John Kerry, and the third one was in Arizona. And so since it was in Arizona, McCain kind of hosted us. And he was like, you know, Dundee in Muhammad Ali's corner. Go get him, George. You're going to do great. And, uh, and uh, so we were in the green room, which is where you wait before you go onto the stage. And in the corner on the television set was a, 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 a news story about an NFL football player, quarterback named Jake Plummer, who played for the Denver Broncos. Absolutely. Jake, Jake Plummer. Jake the Snake. Yes, exactly. And Jake had been a teammate of a guy named um, uh, Pat Tillman. Oh, Pat yes. Tillman was an NFL football player went, uh, for the, for the uh, Arizona Cardinals who post 9-11 left his career, walked away from football an $11 million a year salary to, to sign up and go fight in Afghanistan and was tragically killed uh, there. And then even more tragically, we discovered that it was a friendly fire incident. So it was just the most, tra and this guy was the most incredible human being ever. I mean, just sacrificed so much and just was a very interesting guy. And I had read a lot about him and just got kind of, you know, uh, really invested in his story. And a Time Magazine uh, issue had come out and the headline on the, the story was, never forget this man. And I was so struck by that notion. I said, well, I know I'm going to forget him if I, if I don't do something to make sure I remember him. So I went down and I got his number tattooed on my shoulder, which was 40. Of course, most people think that was, I did that on my 40th birthday. But uh, anyway, so I see, I see McCain in the green room. Oh, so on the story on the TV, the story is about Jake Plummer who had sewed that number 40 on his uniform to remember Tillman. And the NFL commissioner had come out and ripped him and fined him and told me I had to t take it off his jersey. And then the news story cut to McCain, who just ripped the commissioner and just put him through an acid bath, as only John McCain can do. So that's when I walked up to McCain, who I kind of knew, but not well. And I said, you know, Senator, I just saw this story about you ripping the commissioner on Pat Tillman. And I said, you know, I just wanted you to know how much I appreciate that, because I think he's a you know, great American hero and deserves all the honor and respect possible. And, and then I told him the, the story about the Sports Illustrated and getting the tattoo. And he's, he turned to me, he goes, oh, bullshit, McKinnon. And he made me strip down in the green room, take off my clothes to prove to him, show him my tattoo. And then he turns to me and his eyes filled up with tears and he hugged me and he said, I knew there was a reason I liked you, McKenna. <laughs> oh, man. That kind of forged our bond. And then not long afterwards, or when I, I guess it was a little bit after that, at some point, flash forward, he invites me over to his place and we sit down and have dinner. And he says, would you come help me with the, with the campaign? I'm going to run for president. I said, Senator, I'll mow your lawn in Sedona. I'll do whatever you want. Because uh, I do think he is one of the great, great heroes of American life. And really miss his voice now, boy. Talk about missing, oh, missing. Yeah, absolutely, we, we've we've missed him terribly over the past year. Um, but in that campaign, you had uh, trouble sticking through yeah, it so because of the historic the, nature of it. Yeah, the, this is a very. Uh, it was a very odd, unusual, unique circumstance uh, that was one also a bit awkward. Which was this. I when after that discussion about working for him. When it became kind of official, or before it became actually official, I said, Senator, here's a, here's a kind of unusual situation. I, I've met Barack Obama. I like him. I, of course, disagree with a lot of his ideas and politics uh, of his party. And I'm 100% for you and, and going to work for you um, and vote for you, of course. 
and do all I can to help you get the nomination. But if under under these you know really surprising circumstances that you got the nomination and he got the nomination, which at this this is early two thousand seven, and the notion of Obama winning at that point was was so far from possibility. Um, and and so, but I said that, and McCain was like, eh, okay, whatever, because again, because he just didn't think there was a remote chance that that was going to happen. He was like, oh, that's nice, McCain, uh, very sweet. But uh, all right, let's go. But knowing two things, one, I knew that he'd forget we had the conversation and two, that I would conveniently put it away too, because I kind of flashed forward and said, well, what happens if he wins and Obama wins? You're going to get carried away with the moment and you're going to kind of say, oh, never mind about that notion. And the reason that I had made the deal with him uh, and the reason I didn't want to work for him if Obama were president is because I, I like the idea of his candidacy. I thought it'd be good for the country. I thought it'd be good to have a black man in America be the nominee of a major party running for president. And I didn't want to be the tip of the spear attacking him, which is what you have to do in a general election. And I, so my notion was, A, I wouldn't be comfortable doing it, but two, I wouldn't be good at it. You know, you want somebody who's, who's going to bring the hammer. And that wasn't me. And so that was the, really my rationale for it. And then flash forward, Obama shocks the world, gets the nomination, and then I have to go have that conversation with McCain. And, and I had, and again, because I was worried about him forgetting and, and me conveniently putting it aside, I wrote a memo to the staff back when I started the campaign. I just said, listen, I had this conversation with the senator and here's, here's our agreement. So I pulled that out and then, you know, kind of went backstage with McCain, wherever it was. And I said, Senator, I don't know if you remember this. And he's like, ah, God damn it, McKinnon. And, but then he hugged me and he did in classic McCain fashion, said it'd be very un-McCain-like for you to do anything other than keep your word, McKinnon. I love you. Thanks for helping us get here. It's just a beautiful story. I mean, such a beautiful story. He was a great man. Well, I'll tell you one more McCain-related story if you'll, sure, if you'll allow. Sure, absolutely. So I, I walked off the, the, the playing field for that general election but then there were a couple of times when the campaign would call back and say, can you do this or can you do that? And I'm like, guys, I, you know, I've got this deal. I said, I can't do it. And they said, well, what could you do? And then we kind of go back and forth. And so, for example, they said, could you help Cindy McCain with her speech at the convention? And I said, well, if she's not going to attack Barack Obama, sure, that's fine. I can do that. So I did that because I wanted to be helpful. You know, I didn't want to be a complete dick, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, do what I could under the kind of circumstances and agreement and uh, in some ways be loyal. But then flash forward, I guess it was October, I get this call from the campaign manager. It's like, uh, we, Houston, we got a problem. And I was like, uh, what would that be? They said, well, we have a vice presidential debate in about 10 days and we need you to come run it. And I'm like, uh excuse me? <laughs> and so this was, of course, Sarah Palin. And they were, they now realize they had the vice presidential debate. You have those four debates in the general election, three with the, the presidential nominees, but one with the vice presidential candidate. So Sarah Palin, who, you know, had kind of lit it all up at the convention and, and then gotten, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was just this huge, crazy story. Sarah Palin that I don't have to remind you about. But, 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 you, but you know, Mark, uh, you know, in the context of our current times, wasn't she uh, kind of the beginning of this moment in a lot of ways? Oh, yeah. No, you could write a whole book about how she was kind of the start of where we are now in terms of kind of 
you know, the way she dealt with media and, you know, with fake media and, and, and all that. I mean, you can, you can, Sarah Palin is the genesis of Donald Trump, no question about it. She was the Petri dish where this all started. So anyway, so we go back and forth about that. I said, there's no possible way I can do that under the sort of the, my, you know, my convictions and terms. And, and so we went back and forth and they, then they finally said, well, what would you consider doing? I said, well, I said, okay. I said, I'll come in the first night of prep and I'll do kind of a debate 101. Here are the principles of debating. I'm not going to get into specific strategies or tactics about attacking Barack Obama. But I said, if you want me to kind of just do a, a debate 101, I'll do that. And they said, great, come on. So I went down to Sedona and I'm sitting there, John McCain's fabulous place down there. It's this beautiful place in, in Arizona. And and then the Palin troops come swooping in, you know, her with her husband and, and this guy, you know, a passel of kids and it's just chaotic and wild. And she gets right up in my face and she's very electric as a personality, very, she, man, she lights up a room and has just had a ton of confidence. And she's like, oh, you're the traitor that left the campaign, you know, in a teasing fun way. And uh, you know, so you're McKinnon. Okay, well, all right, Buster, let's see what you can do. And just that kind of riffraff. And, you know, you immediately see why she's, you know, she's super charismatic. And so we kind of have a dinner and then we have time to go work. And we go into this little cabin and there's, I don't know, maybe 10 of us total. And it's, you know, this little tiny cabin in Sedona at night. Uh, we barely have lights. And, and we start on this kind of prep routine. And Bob, I swear, you know, not 10 minutes into it, it just ground to a halt because you know, we just threw some sort of very basic questions out and she started stuttering and stumbling and, it, you know, just suddenly the emperor had no clothes and it was just clear how completely unprepared she was to be on the national stage debating. And it was super awkward and, we, and she just like demanded that we stop. And so we all like filed out of this little cabin into the night left her in there. And that's where I had this kind of revelatory moment with, you know, the other advisors like, oh my God, I had no idea it was this bad. And they said, well, you're here to fix it, buddy. So get back in there. Was that so, Steve Schmidt or was that? Uh, it was so Schmidt. It was totally <laughs> Schmidt. That's exactly like who it. it was. That's exactly who it was. And so I go back in and then it was, you know, one of the most interesting hours of my life because I had this, I was with Sarah Palin, who at the beginning of that hour was a, it was a wreck. She was sobbing, completely breaking down, crying, you know, kind of hysterical. You know, I, I, I'm not ready for this. I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to embarrass John McCain. I'm going to embarrass the party. It's going to be a disaster, blah, 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 blah. And just, you know, just a pool of wet mess. And that goes on for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. And then I, I just start to do what, what I've always done. And I know about debate prep and working with candidates is that it's that it's 99% about confidence and building up their confidence because no candidate ever thinks they're going to know everything they're supposed to know. So you just have to kind of get them in a, in a good place in their head about what they're going to do. And so I, I had studied before I went down, I looked at the tapes of her debates in Alaska where she'd run for governor. And it was the same, same model in the sense that she was a small town mayor running against the, you know, the, the establishment, big boys who'd been around forever and she did great, you know, I mean, she, but it was a similar situation where she, she was inexperienced, small town mayor, again, running against, you know, uh, you know, these guys who've been in politics for a lifetime and had debated a hundred times. And she, you know, this is her first shot and she just did great. And so I just started reminding her about kind of put her head in that space. again. I said, remember when you were in Alaska and 
remember this and this and this was your message and you were the you were the outsider and you were the reformer and and then you know suddenly she starts kind of quieting down you see her kind of flashing back and and then you know over the course of the next 45 minutes or so she just starts you know building her confidence and starts seeing you know gets a little you know color returns to her face and and then by the end of that hour she's like I'm ready I'm going to get I'm going to kill him you know I'm going to go get him and you know, so I walked out that night, sort of thinking, okay, we get, we got her back in a good place. But I still thought it was going to be a disaster. I couldn't imagine that she's going to be able to hold her own. But you know, she went and debated. Guess who? Joe Biden. That's right. And she and, and she did hold her own. She did hold her own. I mean, the thing about debates is, it, it's it's not it's not like a forensic debate in college where you get you scored on points. It's all about expectations. So of course she had super low expectations. Biden had very high expectations. She didn't have to do much to beat those expectations, but she did it. So do you think the key for her that night with Biden was when she came out and they shook hands and she said, "Can I call you Joe?" You yeah. think that kind of set set put yes, her? Yes, it did. It totally did. It, it put, put her, her up a little ease, bit. Put him in a different place. Threw him off. You know, put her in command. Amazing. So, Mark, I got to ask you about your, you were not always a, pol- a politics guy. You started out <laughs> as a musician. I wanted to be you, Bob Crawford. Are you and, kidding me? You're living the life I always dreamed. But you're... We should just switch roles for a let's year. Let's do it. You can do... <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, um, so for you, uh, starting out, you were very young. You were in high school where you met your wife. Yeah. Of, Met her before I could drive. I've had a driver's, and I've been with her longer than I've had a driver's license. Amazing. And so let's talk about your musical journey uh, because you fell under, again, you've worked with all these incredible politicians. Well, you got to work, study under the feet of one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Yeah, the Picasso of country music, Chris Christopherson. Um, yeah, just a crazy set of circumstances. I, I love music from from like I was seven, Judy Collins babysat for me in Denver. Uh, so I, I got under the spell of music really early on. Kingston Trio kind of era, early 60s folk music. Uh, there was something called the Denver Folklore Center, which was this iconic, iconic place run by a game named Harry Tuft, who ran it for years. And every, you know, Bonnie Ray, Jackson Brown, everybody came through there. And that's where I learned, to, my mother had gotten some lessons and she took one and decided she didn't like it. So she let me have the rest of the lessons and I was immediately smitten. And then, you know, uh, Meet the Beatles came out and then then I was off and running, you know. This was the only thing I ever w- wanted to do or thought I ever would do was, was be in a band and write music. I loved writing and uh, so, you know, had bands in junior high school, high school, all this stuff. And, and we had this band in high school and through a set of, you know, kind of crazy connections, Christopherson came to hear us play or was at a place where we were playing and he heard us and he liked us. And, it, you know, looking back, it's clear to me that it, it, this was a situation where it's not so, so much that the dog could walk well, but the dog could walk. <laughs> that was interesting. You know, we were just like 14, 15, 16 year olds with a very eclectic sound. It was like upright bass, piano, flute, guitars, uh, violin. Very, if you remember the band, It's a Beautiful Day, that kind of sound, kind of California-esque, soft rock kind of thing. Anyway, it was original music and we were young and Christopherson thought it was kind of interesting. And so he decided he wanted to try and get us a record deal. And, um, and he came out from Nashville with a producer named Dennis Lindy, who was a pretty well-known guy uh, for a while in Nashville. 
And, you know, we went into the studio for a week and produced a demo. And then he went back. And of course, no surprise, we never got a record deal. But at that point, now I'm, you know, 16 year old in high school. I've been hanging out with Chris Christopherson trying to get a record deal. And you know, I'm looking at, you know, Algebra 2. And I'm thinking, man, get me the hell out of here. And so I just wanted to, I wanted to go to the, you know, I wanted to go where the action was. And uh, I wasn't running away from something. I was running to something. And I just, I ran away from home. And I hitchhiked to Nashville. And uh, Christopherson was the most generous human being. You know, he t- so many people can owe their careers to him. So did you he, show up on his door? What, what yeah, was this? Yeah, how? I basically showed up on his door. And then uh, through, so I was there for, uh, I don't know, four or five months. And then uh, he let me live in his apartment and work at his publishing company. I then went back and I finished high school. I, I had one semester left. I went back and I finished. And then the day I finished, I packed up and moved to Nashville and moved into that apartment that he let me live in for the next three years or so. And I wrote music and hung out. And and uh, and then uh, I, a friend of mine told me about this thing called the Kerrville Folk Festival in Texas. And they had a songwriters competition. And so I entered that, went to Texas, won that. And then as a result of winning that, they asked me to come back the next year as a headliner. And on the way back I, to Nashville, I discovered Austin and played at a club called The Hole in the Wall. And then I just, you know, you, you know Austin, you know Nashville. You discovered Austin at the right time. Yes. I mean, that, Austin was on fire. And, you know, it was the whole Cosmic Cowboy thing, Jerry Jeff Walker and Michael Murphy and all that stuff going on. And at that time, there really wasn't live music in Nashville. It was, just, it was, it was a pure recording town. And, and, and I remember saying something to somebody in Austin about, or they were complaining and said, yeah, man, there's like, there's only 80 clubs with live music and 120 bands. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, well, make it 121. I'm on my way. So I moved to Austin and, and I did that for a while. And and then it was really hard for me, Bob, but uh, because I had just signed up to be a soldier in the army of you know music forever, and it was such a you know just emotional commitment for me that. But the one time I probably exercised the most judgment of my life was to look around. And it's probably good that I was in Austin. It would have happened in Nashville anyway. But there were so many good players, and I looked around. And I just said, you know what, McKinnon, you're okay, but you're not great. And there's a lot of really great musicians here. And on the track that you're on. You're going to end up as the second act at the Pflugerville Holiday Inn when you're 50. And you you might want to consider a plan B. And so I went to the University of Texas and got into journalism and started covering politics. And then uh, there was this campaign by a guy I've been covering named Lloyd Doggett and being run by a guy named James Carville and my old friend Paul Begala. And I went and did the campaign. And then I got the bug and offer off was for politics. So you guys kind of started out together. We did. We did. It was our first campaign. And you, did you work with Buddy Romer as well? I, yeah, I did. I did. Boy, you were an encyclopedia, man. Romer was a, maybe my favorite campaign because I had done a, I did a couple campaigns in Texas, lost them and thought, and every time I lost, I kept thinking, well, that's the end of that. And this is where I discovered you can fail upwards in politics pretty easily. But I was trying to figure out what to do. And I had a, a, a few different options. And, but a mentor a friend of mine said, if you think you know anything about politics, go to Louisiana and get your PhD. And so I did. And I went to work for this guy named Buddy Romer, who was a congressman at the time from Northeast Louisiana in this epic Louisiana uh, governor's race that included Edwin Edwards, who it, it was just one of the great characters of all time American political history. He'd won 19 elections in a row. 
uh, charismatic and kind of a Robin Hood figure that would steal from the rich and give to the poor and, and, he, <laughs> and get away with so much stuff. Always just this side of the law. And um, it was one of those races where we we just had no shot. We barely made mo most news stories. And then we just caught lightning in a bottle at the very end of the campaign and snuck out of nowhere and won in this huge upset. Uh, but it was, Buddy Romer was just a classic Louisiana rascal character. He went to Harvard when he was 16, Harvard Business School when he was 18. And yet when he was in Congress, he turned in his poker winnings uh, to the IRS because he was such a gambler. So, and had this Baptist preacher kind of routine that he'd do. So you combine the, just the Louisiana shtick and the, and the, the Baptist preacher routine and the gambler and, and the smarts all in one package. He was, he's, he's the, the most skilled politician I've ever worked for. Mark, this has been an amazing conversation and I could keep you for three hours, but I'll be merciful and we'll save some more for the next time. <laughs> well, Bob, it's, it's always great to talk to somebody who knows so much and cares so much about this stuff. And uh, we appreciate you a lot. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for the time. Bye-bye. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. Osiris Pod.